0: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast.
1: We are young. Hearted to heart. We still No
2: promises. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway?
0: I'm the doctor. I'm a time lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Castelberus. I'm 903 years old and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below.
1: You have a problem with that? No. In
0: that case... Analysis!
1: Would you like a jelly baby? Sarah Jane. Oh, look! Rocks! Wibbly wobbly. Timey rhyming! Oi, watch it, spaceman!
0: Boy, watch it, Earth Girl!
1: your
0: words, Doctor! Uh, Smith. Dr. John Smith.
1: And this is Duggan. He's a detective who's been kind enough to catch me.
0: You always were an optimist, weren't you? Thank you for the compliment. I really want to
1: go. Hello. Mate in six moves, Master... You,
0: you, ah, you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Who True Freaks, the only show on the internet you need to listen to to find about the breadth and width of the stories involving the British icon that isn't Simon Cowell, Doctor Who. Of course, by only show on the internet, I should have added the only show on the internet hosted by me, Sean Engel. And of course, once again, we're doing another fan favorite episode chosen by some of the greatest podcasters in podcastery, podcastum, whatever. Yes, today we're taking a look at another Sylvester McCoy classic episode where the Doctor plays Merlin, Ace becomes the Lady of the Lake, and the Brigadier comes out of retirement to show just what a badass he truly is. And if you don't know from the description, we're going to be covering the uh, serial battlefield today. The Doctor Who episode, not the Jordan Sparks song, thankfully. And when I say we, I can only be talking about my esteemed guest host, and not the voices inside my head, shut up. The people behind the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Professor Alan Middleton and his daughter Emily. Hello folks, how's it going today? Hello! Hi Sean! Hey, thanks for coming on the show, And Now... You were the people who kind of I kinda of put the word out that we were gonna be doing the Doctor Who or Who True Freaks episodes, covering, you know, people's favorite episodes. And I mentioned that I'd like to have you on the show and talk about whatever whatever show you'd like to talk about. Why this one? What what kind of uh, brought you to bring this one and what's your kind of history with Doctor Who? Oh, all the good episodes were taken. <laughs> <sighs> no, don't, that's don't not Don't be bitter. No, that's not <laughs> Sure. We, ha- so we the- haven't even covered the Colin Baker ones yet. I mean, oh. Um.
2: As, as far as my Doctor Who origin story, uh, I lived overseas for 5th grade, 6th grade, and 7th grade. And I was a big sci-fi reader at this point. And somewhere along the line, some of the novelizations fell into my hands. I don't remember if these were from the school library, or if my folks bought them at the English language department store, I don't know, but I definitely remember reading a dozen or so of those novelizations. I probably knew it was a TV show, but I hadn't seen the show, and I told this story to Shag.
3: The irredeemable Shag.
2: (laughs) and, And, uh, he guesses I'm the only person who came to Doctor Who via the novels first. (laughs) <laughs> that was an
0: original origin story for him now that's that that is kind of unique because uh from what i know most people know the show especially from our age group especially living in the states knew the show from watching it on public broadcasting and uh that's mostly how that's how i came from it unfortunately my library never really had any of the doctor who novels uh you know i've in in the recent times I've come to pick up some of the older ones and I've read some of them digitally and uh, in fact uh, the episode that we did a while back the web of fear what got me interested in covering that was that Shag loaned me a version of the novel the the pocketbook novel by Terrence Dix. and it was it was really great so uh, you know getting into this show via via reading you know is is an interesting it's kind of an interesting change from you know the way normal people come into it. Yeah, that, that's
3: my, my dad's weird. It's okay. No, we no. all know this.
0: He, I, I'm he certain is.
2: he meant that in the nice way, right? Yes. Of
3: course. More <laughs> like, unique.
2: But like you said, Sean, like every American of uh, our vintage, uh, I I did eventually, obviously, you know, find the show on PBS uh, back here in the states, and they were all Tom Baker. And I don't remember if if I stopped when Davison took over, or if they just stopped showing it at that point, but the crazy guy with the big scarf was not just my doctor. As far as I was concerned, he was the only doctor, or at least as far as I knew for a while. And it wasn't until maybe my early 20s, mid-20s, when the VHSs started showing up at the public library, that I got back into it and then... Experimented with some of the other doctors. And by this point, Emily had joined the family. And I thought nothing of just having the show on when she was around. You know, it was a British family show from the 70s with a funny guy with a long scarf. I was even, you know, encouraging uh, her to watch some of the episodes with me. And that brings us to Emily's origin story.
3: Right. I was terrified of Tom Baker for years. He scarred me with this, and you guys actually talked about the story that almost made me swear off Doctor Who forever at the age of eight. The uh, seeds of death, doom,
0: doom, death. Yes, seeds Seeds of of death. Seeds of doom. Yeah, that's the one with the the one with Tom Baker.
3: That one. Let us say that I am very well acquainted with the uh, British tradition of hiding behind your couch, but not in a good way. all I saw of it was five seconds or so as I wandered in and I saw this guy with crazy eyes and giant hair and big teeth and I was like this is weird and then I wandered in five seconds later and there was some guy stumbling around then I came back five seconds later and that guy had turned into this horrific abomination of plant and man and I was officially done with Doctor Who forever went upstairs, cried myself to sleep it was not great
2: and my 1997 Father of the Year award straight Officially out the window. revoked.
3: <laughs> revoked. So I happened to
2: show her the scariest episode ever.
3: And then, when the uh, the new series was coming out, uh, one of my friends was a huge fan of the classic. She tried to get me to watch some more classic shows, but I still just had a horrible taste in my mouth, and I couldn't explain why I didn't like it. And finally, she came over one day and was like, okay, just watch one episode with me. And I was like, okay, maybe this one will be less just straight-up body horror. Um, yeah, it was Empty Child.
0: Oh, no. Oh, my I mean,
3: Lord. at this
2: point, she's with 18 or something, but still.
3: 16, probably, and again, I'm just, I'm watching this, and I'm like, I don't like where this is going. This is, this is weird. This is creepy. And then all of a sudden, face-morphing, abomination, monster children. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done again. I'm, I'm not coming back to this show ever. And fortunately, eventually, with series five, I'd started watching a little bit of series four, because I really love Donna. Mm-hmm. And finally... The Regeneration happened, I hated the Regeneration episode, but I stuck around because this crazy skinny guy with weird hair seemed interesting to me. Watched all of Series 5, loved Series 5, and was pretty much a convert at that point. Uh, then, during Series 6, I had some issues with the way the show was going. By series seven, I decided that I was kind of done with the way the series was going and thought, you know, I should go back and give that classic stuff a second viewing. Really trying to appreciate it as an adult. And went back, watched the Aztecs and Remembrance of the Daleks, and was like, I'm good. This is sort of the beginning and the end of this series, and I love this. Uh, so I've been, I'm sort of the the classic Hoovian of the two of us, which is a little weird. but. Uh,
0: so so do you have a specific favorite iteration of the Doctor that you uh, sort of claim as your own, Emily?
3: Well, that's what's kind of weird, because the first Doctor I ever saw was four, and that went poorly. <laughs> the second Doctor <laughs> I've I ever, l- I've
2: been apologizing for 15 years, can you let it go? Mm.
3: <laughs> the second Doctor I was introduced to was nine. This Ooh. also went poorly. Then 10, which was sort of okay. And 11, which is the one who really got me into the show. So I don't have that first doctor favorite thing that a lot of people tend to have. of I watched Tom Baker when I was a kid, so he's my doctor. Or David Tennant is the one who showed me how good this show was, and so he's my favorite. I, I kind of like them all. I, I would say Troughton except that I've only ever seen like three of his episodes because they've all been burned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Making it, my second favorite probably Sylvester McCoy.
0: Yeah, it's it's my hope that with this recent discovery that they found in, oh, I want to say somewhere in, uh, in in the Middle East, like in Egypt or something. Yeah, yeah, more, abs- North, North Africa? North Africa, Northern yeah. Africa. Yeah. yeah. They found these, uh, these films of some of the old Trotten episodes, and I'm hoping that they... You know, because we recently covered the web of fear, a, a mm. one that was almost completely lost and uh, the the DVD version of it was a was an amazing restoration and it was a fun, fun episode and Trotton I would like to I'd personally like to see a lot more of his stuff as well because from what I saw of him, he really has an interesting take on the character and I know if people are a fan of Matt Smith, The recent doctor there's a lot that matt smith took from trump so um yeah that's that's kind of neat because yeah that's that's a very different take on how most people you'll come to doctor they usually come in at a certain era the doctor that they initially view becomes the one that they become closely associated with and then they Either move forward or move backward and find different versions, but usually the first one what they see is the one that they consider their doctor. So it's interesting that because of I guess the trauma of you <laughs> yeah. discovering Doctor Who is has made you not specifically glom on to a specific one. That's interesting.
3: Yeah, I like to think that I'm very jack of all trades when it comes to my fandom, but I can I can appreciate all of the doctors. I even, I have a strong appreciation for Colin Baker, even though so many of his stories are absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really appreciate him. Um, I love Pertwee. Pertwee is so much fun. That was actually, when we were trying to pick an actual episode, we came up with this one kind of by process of elimination. Because I knew I either wanted to do two, which was probably going to be a reconstruction, or it was sort of an important episode because there are so few of them. And I was like, well, I don't really wanna burn an important episode or three, which are just so much fun. But again, a lot of those are really important. You've got Autons and things like that, that they, you know, talk, talk about how important some of those changes uh, in the story were for Doctor Who as a like franchise, which sort of left us with seven. And I just, I think that Seven gets sort of an unfortunate reputation. Because he was the final of the classic Doctors, Paul McGann notwithstanding. That sometimes there's that sort of bitterness of, this is the guy who killed Doctor Who, or oh, his his shows, they were just so bad, or they were so cheesy, or they didn't know what was going on, and behind the scenes, it was so broken, and a lot of that stuff's true.
2: And- and, and and I'll say I'm I've plead guilty uh, in, in in terms of avoiding McCoy or like, like Emily said sort of blaming McCoy for the end of the original run of the show and it has only been the last couple of years through the Hobbit movies and then also the five-ish, doctors special
3: (laughs) the greatest episode of classic who ever
2: that That i spectacular that i have come to recognize what a funny actor he is what a sense of comic timing that he has and have been willing to go back to some of his adventures with more of an open mind
0: Mm -hmm. the one thing that i will say about mccoy is that yes he does have a great sense of comic timing But when he needs to, he can also pull off the drama. He can also pull off uh, what I consider to be a near-Eccleston level of dramatic performance and sort of that grim Mm -hmm. gravitas. And we'll see a little bit of this in the episode that we're covering today.
2: In, in, In retrospect, looking back at Tennant and Smith, I'm not sure that they were able to balance those two things. The humor, the goofy... And the seriousness, um, as well as obviously e- e- Eccleston could do that, and and I think in retrospect McCoy, and certainly Capaldi uh, can manage that as
0: well. You know, running those two extremes.
3: My oh, yes. drama is very similar to comedy. It's all a matter of timing.
0: <laughs> I I can't I can't agree with you more. So um. Uh, Do you want to go ahead? And I've got a little synopsis. Well, I don't have one written up. I have a little synopsis that I've stolen from the BBC website. Do we want to go ahead and talk about that and get into the show? Let's do it. Okay. This one we're talking about was uh, Battlefield. It aired between, let me pull this up, between the uh, 6th of September of 1988 until the 27th of September of 1989. I'm sorry, 1989. Uh, It was written by... Ben Aronovich, uh, directed by Michael Kerrigan, and the, uh, producer was, uh, John Nathan Turner. Uh, the cast included of course as the Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, uh, Sophie Aldred as Ace, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart uh, was played by Nicholas Courtney Marcus Gilbert played Aislinn uh, Angela Bruce played Brigadier Winifred Bambera I'm trying to pull up some of the other, Mordred was played by Christopher Bowen, Morgaine was played by Jean Marsh, and uh, Let's see, who else? Xiao, uh, Xiao Jing was played by Bang Li. Uh, that's about it. We'll go to the synopsis. The TARDIS materializes in the English countryside near the village of Carbury, where a nuclear missile convoy under the command of unit's Brigadier Winifred Bambera has run into difficulties. Lying on the bed of the nearby lake, Vortigan is a spaceship from another dimension containing the body of King Arthur supposedly held in suspended animation, and his sword, Excalibur. Anselin, a knight from another dimension, arrives on Earth to aid the king, but is followed by his rival Mordred and the latter's mother, a powerful sorceress named Morgaine. They all recognize the Doctor as Merlin, a fact that the Time Lord attributes to events in his own future. A battle breaks out between Unit and Morgaine's men, Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart has come out of retirement to assist the crisis and ends up using silver bullets to kill the Destroyer, an awesomely powerful creature unshackled by Morgaine to devour the world, although he himself is almost killed in the process. Morgaine tries to fire the nuclear missile, but is overcome by shock when the Doctor tells her that Arthur is in fact dead. She and her son are then taken prisoner by unit. And that's kind of a very dry synopsis for this episode.
3: Which um, is anything but.
0: <laughs> yes, this is this is really... It, it's surprising to me, looking at some of the additional features on the DVD for this, that this was not really a well-regarded episode. Looking at it in hindsight, I thought this was really entertaining, and I think possibly because of the... what we kind of came to in the uh, finale for the... Uh, season 8 uh, series of Doctor Who with Capaldi that uh, it kind of rings a uh, has, has a bit more emphasis behind it because of the the this is sort of the final episode with the brigadier that we'll see him on screen at yeah, least in I, doctor who
2: yeah I um, you know I did just a little bit of poking around similar uh, uh, you know to what, to what you did to find just sort of where this episode sort of ranks in terms of, of who fandom And a couple of the places I found uh, an an io9 list of 241 Doctor Who episodes put this in the 170s, you know, the bottom third or so. Uh, Another ranking I saw, put it 187 out of 201. I mean, we are talking, you know, fear her level (gasps) of of bad is what this person was applying to it. Uh, I did see the I, I did see a fan ranking that put it about seventieth, which to me is probably closer to where I mean uh, it's probably I, it's not in my top twenty, maybe not in my top fifty, but it's around there. You know, it's in the top third, maybe uh, uh, certainly in the top half. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, Emily and I have, have talked a little bit about on Shortbox Showcase is the difference between something being good. And something being awesome. And I think in some ways this is not good. Boy, there are real reasons to not like this. But it's awesome.
3: It is so crazy, stupid awesome. Like, I don't know how anyone can watch this and not enjoy like the 90-minute experience of watching this episode. It's fun. It is so fun. It is so fun. I I think it's a little bit better in quality than my dad does. Just because I'm able to ignore certain aspects that are really terrible, and I can overlook some stuff that is very cheesy. Uh, It's also funny, because whenever I watch Doctor Who, I always sort of judge it by the mid-70s standards. Which I think is part of why certain things in the effects or the music don't bother me as much. Mm Mm-hmm. Because when I'm watching it, I'm not comparing it to mid-80s television. I'm comparing it to mid-70s television. But that's just sort of... That's where I started. That's where I watched the most... Doctor Who was sort of late, Pertwee, early Tom Baker. And so, regardless of whether it's Pertwee, if it's um, Baker or Baker, if it's Troughton, I always sort of think of it as a 70s show. And so... I think the further distant we've gotten from the cheesiness, the more acceptable it's been that... I I gotta agree. I don't think I would have liked this nearly as much if I'd watched it in the 80s because I would have been comparing it to other, like, groundbreaking, really sort of pushing-the-envelope shows that were coming out in the 80s. So I can, I can it, see having issues with it on a technical level.
0: Yeah, well, at, by this time... Now, granted, in, in the UK, Star Trek The Next Generation would have been playing, but by this time in the States, Star Trek The Next Generation was well into, I think at least its third, maybe even fourth season, yeah. and the effects comparatively on a show like that were far superior. These just seem very B-horror movie type effects, um, a lot of... I mean, those, the lightning effects
2: are yeah, oh, oh. horrendous. Yes. And, and and as you're saying, we can almost look 25 years back and say, well, okay, for 25 years ago, for the 80s, those effects are fine. Mm-hmm. But in 1989, they were five years out of date. Yes. Uh, they, so they, you can sort of see why at the time, you know, there could be some criticism.
0: They hadn't really advanced all that far from what we had seen in the Davidson or the, the Tom Baker era. The effects yeah. looked very marginal and very seventies and for a show that had contemporaries of, you know, like I say, Star Trek The Next Generation, it just sort of paled in comparison. So I see what you're talking about, the cheese factor. And the music is <laughs> the the music
2: is pretty
3: Okay. It's I, bad. Okay.
2: Emily defend the music.
3: I'm gonna go to bat for the music, oh, at no. least Uh-oh. at least a little bit. It yes it is cheesy, yes it is ridiculous. I do I will fight anyone who doesn't get, like, a little thrill of adrenaline every time that ridiculous metal riff comes in. <laughs> when a new a new knight shows up and lifts his sword. It's like you're watching Highlander. And I'm like, yeah! <laughs> Heck yeah, I'm watching Highlander the series, but one that doesn't suck.
0: See, i Unfortunately, every time I saw a knight, I, all I could be brought back to was the Monty Python and the Holy Grail <laughs> yeah, with yes. them fighting the Black Knight. It was... Uh, the
3: Okay, yes. <laughs> the,
0: the costuming wasn't... Uh, for, for the knights, obviously, they couldn't have them running around in full plate mail armor, so they did what they could with their costuming, but you could tell budgetary concerns didn't allow for... The most, the it was not. You're not watching Excalibur. You're no. not watching, you know, a John Borman film. This is but, yeah, not but,
2: but I think the further we get away from that, you can almost dismiss that as being sort of part of the Doctor Who ethos, yeah. almost. And and the story itself, I think, is is the strength at least at least uh, at least to us. Um, you know, I'm a sucker for Arthurian stories, and I'll just come out with that um, it's maybe part of just like, our, our our family not not to speak for Emily but I think I can we are all Anglophiles mm-hmm. which runs through you know our, our whole family and that probably accounts for my doctor who fandom in general or my Sherlock Holmes fandom and certainly plays into my appreciation of and fandom for Arthurian legend oh, and
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so and so this really scratches that itch uh for me personally that that it may
0: not for others and and that's that's what i i like about doctor who is that it's capable of telling modern day stories and telling science fiction stories but also weaving in part of the uh the mythology of great britain with uh you know because i know that there's been prior episodes where the doctor has traveled to the past and met with king arthur so that they're able to bring arthurian legends and arthurian characters in here and 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 they mixed it up enough that it was it felt modernized it didn't feel like they were trying to do a period piece set in the 80s it felt like these characters were brought in from that era and uh it was there were some interesting things. Supposedly, the character of uh, Bambura, the other brigadier, mm-hmm. was supposed to be an analog for Guinevere. Guinevere. If I oh, recall. Yeah. Yep. They, there was a uh, plot that they didn't really get into uh, that she her her name had references to Guinevere.
3: If I'm thinking. Winifred. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes.
2: Okay. Well, 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 her and, and I mean, Winif- her and
3: Lancelot.
2: <laughs> yes. I mean, it's it's Guinevere and Lancelot, and they. And they uh, They
3: are amazing.
2: They are they are crushing on each other, and it's pretty hilarious. Their their flirtations.
3: Their flirtation is fantastic. I, I really I think that the writing is really where this shines. Even more so than the plot, but the character relationships right. in this are so crazy good. Between the Doctor and the Brigadier, between the Doctor and Ace, between Ace and her tiny explosion buddy between the Brigadier and the Brigadier, between Winifred and Anselin. Their flirtation is hysterical to me. That part
2: is, of, is, is it in part one where they meet? Talk about that, that scene, Emily, where they're...
3: Well, <laughs> it's part, part two, oh, okay. when, they, uh, when they officially meet. It's one of the, the greatest things, that Bambera is very much taking the Brigadier role of trying to shoot the aliens... And it's not working, and she is very frustrated, but she sort of lets the doctor go, lets Ace go, and then stops this crazy, LARPer-looking dude, and like, (laughs) Okay, you and I, we're gonna talk, because I can't really deal with him right now. You, I can deal with. And he uh, calls her a peasant, and she gives him a consequence. And uh, they proceed to flirt-wrestle, which is (laughs) one of the greatest phrases I think I have ever said.
2: They are wrestling in the background as Ace and the Doctor just walk off towards the camera. They are wrestling on... and and
0: what does the Doctor call it?
3: Oh, uh, (laughs) they're exchanging their credentials.
0: (laughs) yes um on the one of the extras on the dvd actually talked about them doing that supposedly that was not planned out or choreographed as a fight oh. that was just them essentially getting into a wrestling match and you know throwing mild punches and tossing each other off of each other to to sort of
3: okay, j- that just does, to sort
0: of sell that the does
2: show. Ex- that does explain it it does have the look of not being professionally choreographed
3: and it's wonderful and to be followed up by possibly the greatest. Well, I can't even say the greatest because everything that Anselin says in this show, I absolutely love. But when she drags him into the later- were you a few even listening
2: later, to what he was saying? Just, I mean, he's Dreamy's eighties generic Arthurian night guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, on the second viewing, maybe you were listening to what he was saying.
0: But... <laughs> uh, <laughs> he did really. D- he did have he did have wonderful 80s hair. It wasn't no mullet. But he, he did have he did have some great hair. I will okay, give you-
3: I have a I have a hair thing. I'll admit it. Anyway, but when Bambera finally drags him into the pub and just chucks him down in a chair, handcuffed, and the doctor comes over and asks what <laughs> happens, he quote, "She vanquished me and I threw myself on her mercy." I'm like, <laughs> just just make out, guys just make
0: out. Well, and I love that later in, later in the show they've, they've fallen asleep, and they've fallen asleep together. Yes. <laughs> with, yes! With one leaning up against each other, you know, sort of each on their shoulder, and it leads to a nice little humorous scene where the doctor goes and grabs an empty bag of I guess crisp or whatever, and blows it up, pops it behind them, <laughs> shocks them awake, and just you know tips Good his hat. Good morning! It's, pretty... <laughs> it's, it's so much fun.
2: It is, and 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 there are just some great Easter eggs in there in the in the, the first episode where they're trying to get into the into the dig site, which is also somehow a nuclear weapons silo.
1: It just roll it's, it. it's Doctor Who.
2: So, yeah. and so he has his old their old set of IDs, and you know he has his and and he gives one to Ace, and Ace looks at it and says, "Who's Elizabeth Shaw?" <laughs> And the doctor says, don't worry about it. Just think like a physicist.
0: (laughs) A nice reference to the uh, Pertwee companion. Exactly. The the seasons with Pertwee, so that was great. Um, The TARDIS, unfortunately, and if if you noticed in the show, the TARDIS was really dimly lit, and they kind of said that it was malfunctioning or whatever, and the doctor was trying to fix it. One of the reasons behind that, I, I... Uh, that came on on the uh, ancillary on the ancillary stuff on the DVD was that it had kind of fell into disrepair and some of the walls had actually been damaged yeah so they had to sort of paint the roundels on uh, plywood or whatever and
3: and just tape them off or something
0: and so in fact I think I think they mentioned that all this is the last interior shot that you would see of the TARDIS until, until they came back with the uh, movie for Paul McGann, where they completely were redesigned it and gave it a very Victorian type feel.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, very that, eighth, the, the Wells TARDIS. Yes. Yeah,
0: they, I mean that 15. that tells you where they were, you know, budget
2: wise mm-hmm. that they went an entire season because this is the first serial of the season.
0: Yes, that there so were they n-
2: went the rest of the season without fixing that.
0: Yes, that bringing that up to your, yeah. scene. So that's that 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 does kind of. Show you that maybe it was just budget, maybe it was lack of interest, maybe it was uh, because I don't think this fails story wise because this was an interesting story, even though Aronovich seems to have negative feelings about it. One of the things that he was Definitely. disappointed about was uh, you know the the way that they were the, his send off for the brigadier.
3: Mm. It's I, true I, there is there isn't as much of a a proper send-off. It's, it, it doesn't feel like a send-off story. It just sort of feels like another Brigadier story. But I actually kind of like that. That It's, it's. what did you say? It was, it's the action movie uh, trope of he retired, he thought he was done, but then when they needed him.
2: One last time. One trial, last time. They bring him out with his monogrammed briefcase. Oh yeah!
3: <laughs> and his hit-and-stick. I love that he's almost gonna leave and then his wife comes out and says oh you you forgot your stick. Like, oh
2: But I thought I thought the Brigadier's uh, inclusion in the story was was terrific. Um, you know, he has this nice, peaceful retirement going where Which he is
3: adapted to rather poorly. Well, yes, but
2: he's trying. He and he and Mrs. Brigadier are trying to make a go of it and doing his gardening. And but only the doctor can bring him out of retirement. And his suit almost fits. His old uniform almost fits him. Yeah. I mean, from a guy's perspective, that counts <laughs> is almost fitting. Okay.
3: Sure.
2: And, if, I, and 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 if one brigadier is good, two brigadiers have to be better.
3: I don't see the downside of that logic. And actually, I, I, I really noticed this. There were just one or two. Shots that made me wonder if this was intentional. But watching him gardening, desperate, like, angrily trying to be retired. (laughs) The whole time when I was looking at him, all I could think of was the five-ish doctors. With Colin Baker out in the garden. Because he's rather portly. Doesn't quite fit in the suit anymore and is trying so hard to garden until the call comes in. And I was just like, the, he, even some of, just he some was of the willing, framing.
2: They, he was willing to drop his hobby quite quickly to call, <laughs> just, run back to...
3: Even even just the framing of a couple of the shots where it was going from the house to him, I was like, am I watching the five-ish doctors?
0: But, <laughs> yes, it but didn't, I, didn't take much to get the uh, brigadier back in the uh, suit. going In back the
3: suit and... In, and in the helicopter? To be fair, if your company car was a helicopter, oh, I wouldn't yes. retire either.
0: Yeah, well, I, I would. I'm, I would find any reason to go back to work. Oh, I get to fly in the helicopter. I'm there.
2: I mean, I lo- I, I I love the scene where uh, where he and where he's flying in and, and he's fallen asleep <laughs> in the <laughs> helicopter, so cute. which is probably you know a, a reference to his to his age, uh, uh, you know the age of the character falling asleep. Or just to a confident military man who can fall asleep anywhere, you know. But I, I, I think it hit on both of those. But I think it was intended to be humorous.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, ad, ad, admittedly, I mean, we talked about the music, and that scene is just not the same without the airwolf theme <laughs> playing, playing under it. <laughs>
0: Uh, Andy Lillard
3: is here with us in spirit.
0: Yes, thank you, Andy and Stephen. We're sorry that you couldn't make the show, but you are here. You are here in our hearts. Uh,
2: I I I, uh, I, I, did want to continue to talk about the, the Brigadier for a second and sort of relate it to this most recent season with Capaldi. And you know, one of the themes of Season 8 was Capaldi not liking military men. And... You know, part of the criticism of that was, oh, but his best friend was, was the brigadier. You know, this is such a change in the doctor's, you know, feeling, and it's not. You know, that was not. Um, yes, the doctor worked with the military or for the military, as, as we found out. He was still on the payroll. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But he does not, I, I believe he, he refers it to something about the military mind. You know, not liking the military mind. And there are some, you know, anti-nuke, uh, anti-military comments in here. So this idea that, yes, he can be friends with the brigadier and still not like uh, the military attitude, A, that's not inconsistent, just internally, and B, when that showed up in Capaldi this year, that was not out of the blue either.
3: Mm-hmm. It's something that is, is important to recognize is that he does work with the military, but that he does not like them. That even, you know, even during the unit years, he was there because he was trapped. He was basically being held hostage. And...
2: He grew to respect and like the brigadier. The brigadier. It, yes. And
3: only the brigadier.
2: If there's a reason we can't mention a second military man that he was close to.
3: Yeah, even Yates, he was like, oh, Yates, you're an idiot. And with, with Bambera, he kind of treats her like an idiot. You know, he says that they can they can pull things off on her, that, uh, oh, here's, here's three things to establish my credentials, and then lists five, and says, so, so, oh, she didn't even notice. Or, like, military never noticed. Just all of these references to being either stupid or just narrow-minded, unaware. I
2: think just sort of narrowly Narrow, focus. Focus on their job and that's
3: it. Focus to, to an extreme. He doesn't like soldiers in this either. And and that is an important thing that we sort of wanted to bring up. He says that the way he knows it's a, a nuclear convoy. Ace just says, oh, they've got a military convoy. And he says, it's nukes. How do you know? There's a graveyard stench about this place.
0: Oh, and it does, it does show that the Doctor's liking for the Brigadier and his disliking for the Brigadier can be uh, shown pretty well when the Brigadier mentions all the things that he has or that unit has developed to go against the Yeti. You know, mm-hmm. so- the gold tip bullets to defeat Cybermen. You know, the, the different things that the unit has developed over time to try and ward off these things. And it kind of surprises the Doctor at the time that the Brigadier is doing this because... I think the doctor's respect and you know admiration for the brigadier is separate from his disdain for the military in general. I think his his camaraderie with the brigadier it was kind of not really shaken, but it sort of surprised him that the brigadier would have been part of all this military buildup um, when the doctor himself would is primarily is primarily a person who tries to find peaceful resolution rather than just. Having weaponized uh, things in order to take out these threats to the to the world.
2: Exactly. And in 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 light of the season eight finale, uh, I did note that the Doctor did not salute the Brigadier.
3: Nope. <laughs>
2: that was not uh, that was not done during this episode. I think that was probably he. They said that was never done. And I imagine if we went back and looked, it probably was never done.
0: I, I don't think... I know uh, during the point where they were meeting and I think one of the subordinates gives the brigadier a salute and gives maybe the doctor the salute as well. He tips his hat to him,
3: mm-hmm. but he, right.
0: does, he does not specifically salute. So He no, is yes. a gentleman.
3: He is yes. not a soldier.
0: <laughs> well, and, you know... It, the the hat tip thing also works as a comedic bit. There's the point near the end of the show where Anselin and Mordred are you know fighting <laughs> it out.
3: <laughs> oh my gosh!
0: And he yes. walks right through. It, it's it's almost, it's almost. It's almost Mark's Brothers humor. So it, it, it's yeah. It's, it's it's marv. It's a marvelous melding of comedy and drama in this episode. One of the characters we haven't really touched on, and that I'd kind of like to talk about, was was Jean Marsh as Morgaine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if either of you had seen the uh, movie Willow with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, Oh
3: my gosh, is she in that? Is or Rick the, Davis?
0: She is the uh, main the villain. She villain is Bad Morba. Oh, Bat Morva. I think. Bad Morva. Something. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and her portrayal in this is is very similar to what she had in Willow, and it's just. Uh, a uh, fun. She she gets to choose some scenery like crazy.
3: Oh yeah. Uh, and
0: I I really enjoyed her performance. She she adds a lot to this show. Yeah. When I first saw her, I thought, ooh, she's going to be
2: a little over the top. But two things: one, you know, she ended up not being. She ha- had a lot of subtlety uh, in her performance, and two. Her son, Mordred, was incredibly, the absurdly, top. Over the, he was the over top. the top, circled back around, and went over the top again.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so in comparison, she certainly seemed reserved.
3: She was, Yeah, she was the more realistic of the two. Mm-hmm. Something about this series, as, or the, this serial as a whole, is that it felt, this is maybe a little bit of a weird, I don't know, analogy, but just sort of go with it. The whole thing feels kind of like a stage play, and if you sort of think of it in that that perspective of like you're going to see a Shakespearean comedy drama, it works pretty well, I think, because then you then you take the costumes, which are cheaply produced, but I think very well designed. Same thing; uh, it's it's all on location rather than sets which actually gives it a pretty good look. Um, and the acting is over the top, but in a very sort of stage acting right. type of over the top, where you're, it's not that it's bad acting, but it's almost, if if we want to go for a real classic, uh, classic movie, you mentioned Marx Brothers, I would actually say it's very Charlie Chaplin's Great Dictator, that it is simultaneously, Hilarious and very serious, over the top and subtle. So it's 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 got that. It's a very weird sort of vibe, but I think I think is an interesting overall vibe. You've just got to sort of roll with it. I, I admit that. I
0: like the idea of it being akin to a stage play and akin to a Shakespearean stage play because you will get the sort of gnashing of teeth, the sort of uh, trying to. Emote, which we see significantly in the character of Mordred, uh, that you'd get in a, 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 a kind of a not really cheap, but not uh, like a local, for, yeah, a, a low budget theater, yeah, a local theater version of a Shakespearean play, and I think that's that's a good analogy that you could put forth this this show.
3: And I, I, I am a theater person. I am associated with many theater persons. I have worked in many local theater productions, <laughs> so I have a real love for that aesthetic. If you can roll with the aesthetic, this is it. This is that aesthetic very well executed. I think.
2: Yeah, and on, on on the production side, we mentioned the special effects are beyond atrocious. But I, like Emily said, I liked the the scenes that were clearly filmed on location, and there's something about them being filmed and being on location. They actually do hold up better. Then you know you, you don't have the this was obviously filmed this was obviously videoed on a set, on, on a set and mm-hmm. on, a, on a, on a wobbly set 30 years ago. You know, I think just the look of film, uh, you know, those, those scenes that were, uh, that were filmed just by their nature are going to hold up a little bit better. Just the, the look of them,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, just cause they look more realistic. And so I thought that was a strength. I also thought of, you know, we'd mentioned the costumes and, uh, some of the, the, the effects and the music. I thought that the Destroyer, the demon... Yes. I thought awesome. his mask... The combination of the the, the mask and the makeup,
0: and that job... The mask, the makeup, and the effect. ...was surprisingly strong. It, mm-hmm. Oh. I thought... Yeah, the Destroyer was perhaps one of the best... villain, One of the best monster alien characters that I've seen in Doctor Who in a long time. Oh, yeah. a, a, a lot of time, makeup effects in doctor who are significantly cheesy that it doesn't look good at all uh i remember Earthshock, some of the cybermen oh, yeah. some of the cybermen just looking really really bad uh a lot of times when they get e- even recent episodes uh, like remembrance of the daleks uh some of the daleks looked kind of cheesy as That's well awesome. yes
2: Maybe it's the advantage of only having one demon to worry about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it's not like you have to do fifty Cybermen and numbers thirty-one through fifty, pretty slapdash together or something. Well, you no, know, they they only had one monster. Uh, you know, to to do that amount of, again, whether it's latex and rubber, you know, the whatever the
0: the masking and makeup process was. And and for the character, it the character of the Destroyer wasn't any different than your typical big bad in doctor who he was just a sort of evil villainous character who had Mm -hmm. powers beyond what the doctor was used to but he was a blue demon he he was what
3: what you think when you hear big blue demon he was that
0: (laughs) yes it was a magnificent piece A magnificent
3: big blue demon (laughs) i was really impressed with with the destroyer that when they were like oh the destroyer i was sort of imagining the silurians from uh the the not 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 new Silurians
1: right right
3: old Silurians third Doctor Silurians where they've just got the the green plastic plaster masks like glued on their face I was like ooh this is gonna be terrible and then it was actually able to emote and had like water effects built into the mask and had lights and I was like Whoa. where did, where did this come from hang on hang on apparently they spend all of their time and money on the Destroyer which is actually not really a bad thing. Yeah. I kind of like it when, when Doctor Who allows itself to be smaller that when you don't have money and it, rather than just trying to spread it really thin and do a big idea to just go, okay yes, it's you know Merlin and Arthur and Arthurian legend and battles and all this stuff, but there's actually not that many effects which is good because they are terrible but it's mostly just a bunch of stuntmen in costumes throwing each other and hitting each other and our main characters even our two main villains have almost no makeup and you know fairly simple costumes just running around being evil but actually sort of emoting I I appreciated that when you can really sort of get to the both the drama and the comedy and not get bogged down and but it's a sci-fi fantasy show it's got to be big and explodey and flashy
0: well i think a lot of times the limitation of the budget allows for you to have to to find ways to work around that to find ways to do it through storytelling and through through uh you know through elements like that you can have every once in a while your big budget thing. Like I said in Remembrance of the Daleks, they had the uh, special weapons Dalek. In this oh, episode, I love they special have,
3: weapons Dalek.
0: In, in this episode, they have the Destroyer. That's their big budget special effects thing. And I, it really works for the show. But what Doctor Who is known best for doing is using its limited budget in ways to get the drama out through the character development. Through mm-hmm. different... Through the different actors that they bring in, so the it is if you're if you're distilling it down to its to its core, Doctor Who yes is a special effects show, but it succeeds on its level of drama, not its level of special effects. And going back to the next generation, that was probably one of the things that differentiated it from Doctor Who is that it had the budget to do the big special effects. But sometimes that, you know, allowed them to rely solely on the special effects, and some of these shows didn't have the drama that these episodes of Doctor Who would have. We paid for this holodeck. We're going to use this holodeck,
2: whether All it makes sense, in, whether it makes sense in the story, or if it conflicts with the way we used the holodeck three episodes ago. We're going to use it. Yep.
3: <laughs> Got to get your money out now. We've been talking about this for almost an hour ish. We should. I, I sort of want to uh, really discuss. I don't even know the elephant in the room, but the, the concept, the big point of this story, which is that the doctor is Merlin. Discuss?
2: I hmm. like it. And I'm not sure if. I mean, obviously, timey-wimey became a terminology in, in Blink. Uh, you know Stephen Moffat writing in the Russell T Davis era, but I don't really know if timey wimey as a concept,
3: timey yeah, you know,
2: was as big a deal in original uh, Who, but we have a couple of moments of it here. One, that overall big idea that um, in the future, a future incarnation of the Doctor will become Merlin in the past. past. Just that that little you know mind twist, um, that by itself is pretty amazing. Uh, in addition to the fact that he has left himself clues throughout the story, which is also a neat little time travel uh, sort of sci-fi shtick. But I like that. But again, I'm a sucker for Ar- for King Arthur. I'm a sucker for the Doctor Who. Peanut peanut butter chocolate works for me together.
0: I like I like the concept of the Doctor being somehow connected to Merlin and connected to the Arthurian legend. There is enough in this show to make you feel that this might not be the specific Britain version of the Arthurian legend. There are mentions that these people are from an alternate dimension. There are specific sci-fi aspects to it. So these could be interdimensional arthurian legends but it's close enough that it, it, it it doesn't make it doesn't diminish the fact that the doctor could have been merlin and i think it's an interesting idea that that could easily be expanded upon in later series if they had ever decided to run with it
2: and you know the well first of all you know, in 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 season eight, you know they did the whole twelve issues. Uh, twelve, is my, uh, my my comic book fandom coming out there. They did all twelve <laughs> episodes, you know, right in a row. But if they were to split a season up again, you know, into six and six, and sent Capaldi back to Camelot to become for Merlin, four or five or six episodes, that could be potentially awesome. They, it, 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 it is
0: out there as a possibility. I mean, he dealt with Robin Hood pretty well. That's mm-hmm. I was going to mention, you know, his it, the, the episode that he did with Robin Hood, I thought was one of the better episodes of the Capaldi run. And I think Capaldi could play it off really well, having, having possibly an ongoing story arc, hearkening back to the sort of, you know, earlier days where we'd have right. four or six part episodes. Mm-hmm. That that all intertwined, having you know even just two or three episodes, you know since they're now forty five minutes, minutes or right right around that time period, having that kind of through line and having Capaldi play Merlin would be an interesting idea. I I don't know whether Moffat would. I know Moffat is a fan of a, a lot of the old stuff. He he's very knowledgeable about it, but I don't know if he'd be willing to to take this on, but it's it's a really great seating, and I'd I'd be interested in seeing Capaldi try and pull that off.
2: And I, I, I mentioned Emily, you know, he, he could get a new companion, you know, and take her back there, but Emily's idea...
3: Well, just go back to Camelot, ha- find some random lady who wants to become Merlin's apprentice, and take her with you! <laughs> we can finally have a companion from the past! I've wanted this since Nanny Clara happened. And then she died, and I was like, "Oh, great! We're not going to get one from the future or from the past." Yeah,
2: yeah they've, they've they've teased us a couple of times with that. You know, what are the what are the odds that every companion would be born within a few years of each other and a few miles from each other uh, mm-hmm. on that on, on that little island there within uh, you know, with, with within about the same age range.
0: Yeah, that is one of the, the things that has been not really a negative, but that has been sort of a sticking point for the the, the series of New Who. All the companions have essentially been young women from Great Britain and, and modern Britain. And, and modern Great Britain. You you don't have people you don't have a character from the Scottish Highlands. You don't have a Victorian a lady from Victorian England. You, you, you know, I understand you want to try and give those characters the, the hook to relate, to have to, to for them to be the relation to the audience, the person that the audience relates to. But it would be interesting if they would sort of harken back to the doctor can pull anyone from any time period to be his companion, to to have him travel with them. Why specifically does it need to be a person from modern era? Heck, pull someone from from the far future. There have been references to the uh, 58th century. And, you know, uh, one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who was the... Uh, oh, it's slipping my mind now. The one with Magnus Greel, Talents of Wing Chiang. That's who I was mm. thinking of. You know, the, one, of my, one of my favorite, you know, Tom Baker episodes... That, you know, d- pull a person from, from the far future to travel with you. I mean, maybe he'll be, maybe that person would be as knowledgeable as the Doctor and, you know, d- could could go up against him as a sort of equal rather than the Doctor having to try and have to explain things back and forth. It, it, it changed the dynamic up a bit.
3: Agreed. I adore the Doctor as Merlin. I... Uh, When I heard that that was the concept behind this episode, I was like, this is going to be one of my favorite episodes of all time. I haven't seen it, I don't know anything else about it, but I'm going to love this. And then I saw it and I was like, yep, I love this. I adore mixing fantasy and sci-fi, and there are a lot of people who don't like getting their fantasy and their sci-fi and vice versa, but his reference to Clark's rule that any truly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and that the reverse is true. That sophisticated magic is indistinguishable from technology blew my mind the first time I, I heard that. I I, I I had never really heard that sort of aesthetic that I love so much summed up so perfectly before. And so I was just floored by that realization. And then all of the timey-wiminess about him leaving notes for himself and things like, oh, dig hole here. How do you know what that says? Well, because I wrote it. You know, or
2: yeah yeah it's it, it starts off there they're at the uh, at the uh, excavation mm-hmm. and and they you know dust away a little bit and they say, you know this is the one inscription we've not been able to figure out and the doctor says it says dig here oh but what language is that my handwriting
3: <laughs> that I, I just that and the the door being keyed to his patterns or the the final note which just just was so utterly hysterical, and really Explain. made me want it to, like, really made me love Capaldi being future Merlin, because I could just totally hear that in Capaldi's voice of Arthur died at, or King died at final battle, all else propaganda, by the way, nuclear countdown started, you should go now.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <there's laughs> a, yeah, yeah Ace finds that note, it says it's a note to you, Doctor. She from re- you. She reads that note, and he says, oh, who's it from? It's from the Doctor oh, we should go do that then.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And then he he says, P.S., the nuclear countdown has started. He goes, I'll have to remember to give myself more time next time, and runs away.
2: And and that, to me, was reminiscent of the uh, Season 8 episode, Time Heist.
3: Which was also a maybe less important, but crazy fun episode, which I felt really harkened back to this sort of classic feel yeah,
2: which is about you know capaldi leaving himself notes and and, and making
3: plans for himself and that, that he, he doesn't knew, know about. that he
2: knew he would follow but didn't know about at yes. the time.
3: but uh yeah i just i i loved exploring some of the mysticism of the doctor and that's something that they've been trying to do a bit with the uh the second and third seasons with uh with Sylvester McCoy is getting the mystery about the doctor back and trying to make him a little more enigmatic and curious and you don't quite always understand why he's doing what he's doing that's where he becomes the chess master as people like to say really pithily um, you know the whole cartmel master plan and all that and training ace to be become a time lord and all those sorts of things like i i like whenever they can they can really make the doctor strange. And in this case, mystical.
2: Like, and, and I mean, I, I like that as a concept, but do you need to visualize it with him having that many question marks on his sweater?
3: Okay. <laughs> I love the Seven costume, and I will hear nothing bad against it.
0: Too many question marks on that sweater.
3: Mm. I, I disagree. Will, I want that sweater.
0: I will admit, they, they did have a sort of visual cue to the uh, darkening of the Doctor in this series. Uh, previous, his Costume had a his outer jacket or his sports jacket or whatever you would call it was a lighter tan, and throughout the series that we saw today or we saw in this series, it was a, a darker brown. So it's mm-hmm. a sort of visual representation of them trying to darken the concept of the Doctor, which of course was part of the Cartmel plan. You know, he's he's a person with a plan. There's he's going towards some sort of direction we don't know what it is yet but we'll be giving it to you it was just unfortunate that it never really got to play out because the ratings being so so poor
3: agreed it was also funny when uh when he gets his big confrontation with morgaine and they're circling each other and she says i could always beat you at chess he says chess I'm not playing chess, I'm playing poker! And Ace comes out of the portal and he just goes, I've got an ace up my sleeve! <laughs> Was just that perfectly, I think, summed up that whole, the whole episode in microcosm right there is but- drama, then sudden change of focus, pratfall, and then comedy. And- now,
2: now that's that's one difference with watching this in one sitting, as opposed to watching it every week. Is that there were a couple of other ace puns, and watching them in an hour and a half, I, you know,
3: it got it got kind of punny. What but was it? Aces,
2: uh, mystical swords are commonplace, but aces, aces are, are rare. rare. <laughs> yeah. Which is okay if that was the only one for that week, maybe, <laughs> and it was going to be a week before the next ace pun, but you know, watching them within you know in ninety minutes was a bit got a bit. Uh, I liked it. I liked it, too. <laughs> uh, Sean, I don't think that you guys have done no, they any did. Ace.
3: You guys did Remembrance. Yeah, we did you? Remembrance. Oh, right. Remembrance was the other oh. one that I kind of wanted to do, and then you guys did it, and I was like, well, second choice is Battlefield, because Ace do. is still awesome.
0: Yes, I mean, we haven't really talked about Ace all that much. She's Go not right. uh, Yeah,
2: she's not baseball batting
3: a, a Dalek, Dalek to death. <laughs> she's not
2: that cool in this episode. <laughs>
3: but she, but she is, is awesome. She is, you know, blowing up. Blow, blowing holes in the countryside and diving out of the lake with the sword and <laughs> beating up wizards and trash-talking demons, badass, which I think is a level of badass that we can all strive to achieve. And? That's an achievable level of badass.
2: And she found a little explosive, buddy. <laughs>
3: she found a little friend that they can talk about TNT with.
0: Yeah, the, the, the character of uh, shang Shu or whatever her name was... Uh, mm-hmm that was the only character that felt out of place in there. She felt like she had really no purpose in the show otherwise to be except to be just a sort of chat mate for Ace.
3: Yeah. But, uh, which I, I, I didn't it was fine. If, if for her and it was also funny that at a certain point she sort of became the brigadier's default companion. Mhm. Um <laughs> which was which was humorous to me. Um I uh, speaking of her though, I did love the scene where she and Ace are protecting the sword in the chalk circle. And first of all, she got to make a joke about being Asian, that uh, Ace says, should we sprinkle holy water or something? And she says, I don't know, it's not my mythology, which I thought was funny. And then the two of them starting to fight was, again, one of those scenes where there's no special effects, no budget required, it's just acting. And that was one of the more gripping scenes for me, where they are just sitting back to back, and then you see Morgaine doing something. And they start fighting and start calling each other names, and it gets really personal and mean, and then they realize what's going on and hug. And I was like, oh, it. I, I appreciated that they could do that even then with a character who we just introduced we didn't know anything about. But they could still build up enough of a relationship between the two of them that you felt something.
2: And and about, again, not right away, at least for me, it took me a third of the way into that scene. To say, oh, there's an evil at force here that's causing this. Yes. This is not general stress over the situation. And again, that's to writing and performance yeah. There's no the the, the special effect that's happening is in the viewer's imagination. It's it's
0: Morgaine manipulating them from far right. uh, and trying to get them out of the circle because she wants to obtain Excalibur. So yeah, it it was an effective scene. It was an effective use of just simple lighting and mm-hmm. them standing in a chalk circle and, and doing some really good dramatic acting. So. It was a scene that worked, yeah. Uh,
3: now, con- continuing with this sort of Doctor and uh, the, the the discussions of doc the Doctor as Merlin and being a sorcerer wizard, kind of, but not yet. Uh, we do have to talk about the fact that he does have master eyes.
2: He does have Jedi mind powers.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, specifically Master Eyes, that he has the thing where people are talking to him and he just stares them down and they do what he wants. Which was weird, because you're like, oh my gosh, that's a Master thing, but was also kind of interesting. Just sort of playing into that sense of mysticism that back in the early day, well, I say the early days, but the, the sort of the Third Doctor era, Sometimes people like to simplify it down to uh, science versus magic in in the, the antagonism between the Doctor and the Master. That the Master is arcane and unknowable and all of those sorts of things, whereas the Doctor is all about science and facts and evidence. And I think it's interesting to, to get a Doctor who is more arcane, who does whatever the Master is able to do with his glowy crazy mind controlly eye beams apparently the doctor is also able to do it and they don't explain it which I could see some people getting really annoyed by but on the other hand they never explained it with the master and we bought it so
2: yeah but he was a bad guy so we expect bad guys to have mind control powers it's weird what a hero does
3: but but why does he have them what right. what technology right. is it that is indistinguishable from magic? You see uh, what I'm getting at? You see see it. my see I my point? It.
0: I'm I'm wondering if I wonder if uh, Alan maybe hit on something in the uh, relationship to Star Wars, how it being somewhat like uh, analogous to a Sith versus a Jedi, that these are both things that these people can, that the Time Lords have the capability of doing it's this is just the first time that the doctor has felt a need to use it while the master used it all the time because being he evil about, he was yeah. manipulative that's that's do. how he got things done
3: he didn't care about people's free will or agency or things of that nature and and
2: and if the doctor is starting to you know work into this mystical magical wizardry sort of mindset it's probably why he was able to be taken out by a superheroic Brigadier karate chop.
3: Oh my gosh. The Kirk <laughs> Chop is one of the best things in this episode. Everything in this is the best thing in my mind. But that is fantastic because it even it even tricked me. It tricked me that the Brigadier looks up and goes, Oh, is that a spaceship? Which is so obviously an Oh, is that a blue-spotted elephant in the corner? <laughs> but it's Doctor Who. So of course it the Doctor, actually the doctor immediately goes, oh no, a spaceship? Really? And just, chop. Grab the grab the gun, run away. Which was so great. And again, just underlined that the, the... Sometimes people like to get really, I don't know, Batman-y with the Doctor and be like, oh, he doesn't use guns. It's like, no, he doesn't like guns. That's the difference. That you get the sense that The doctor was totally willing to go in and shoot the destroyer, but he didn't want to. He doesn't take any pleasure in ending life, regardless of how evil or destructive.
2: And the brigadier is more disposable than the doctor is. In
3: his own words, yes. And I just, I wanted to hug my TV. I'm like, no, Alistair, we need you.
0: You're not, you know, it, it, you're not expendable. It it was a great moment for the Brigadier. It was an ability to show... He got sort of... I guess you could kind of complain a little bit that it was kind of a Danny Glover-type moment of I'm getting too old for this type thing. Yeah. But but it was... He did deliver an awesome line of Get off my planet.
3: Yes. (laughs) That's
0: just so magnificent.
3: Which was perfect because it was underlined by another great line which was... Which was, the the destroyer turns to him and says, Can your world do no better for a champion? And the brigadier just looks at him and goes, Probably. I just do the best I can. Bang, bang. Bang, bang.
2: Silver bullets. You're dead. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, and me. explosion. And of course, the brigadier survives, but the doctor still got to have his, This wasn't supposed to happen! You were supposed to die in bed! And they- they have a moment and he's really broken up and then the doc and then the brigadier just opens his eyes and is like, Oh really, you don't think I'm that easy to kill? And the doctor just like what? Well, I-, I was I wasn't even worried. I don't even care. I don't even care. You <laughs> we're
1: can- men. We're you can- men. We,
3: we don't get
2: emotional. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I really like the idea. In an episode with Michael Bradley, we talked about Batman and Superman's relationship and how regardless of how much they do or don't agree with each other, they are war buddies, they have been through stuff, they will always have each other's back, I love that, that metaphor, that even though the Doctor is not a fighter, he's not a soldier, he has been in war, he has started wars, he has ended wars, and that the Brigadier is basically his one war buddy that he has. And that the two of them will just always have each other's backs, like regardless of the situation, complete trust, even when they disagree with each other, that they'll, they'll work through it because they have this, this very deep care for each other that they just don't express very often unless one or the other is, well, dead.
0: I think, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, they have the same goals, both the Brigadier and the Doctor have the same goals their methodology may be a little different simply because the brigadier comes from the aspect of a military person while the doctor wants to try and rationalize things out so it, 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 the analogy to batman and superman is 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 a good one it's their goals are similar the ways they go about doing it is a bit different but they seem they they realize that they want to accomplish the same thing so there's the camaraderie That comes from wanting to have that same goal of keeping peace on this planet so yeah
2: and to uh you know to the reference unit and the Pertwee era uh, again which is you know this is calling back to to some of that we also had a special uncredited guest star
3: Bessie
0: (laughs) oh yes that that
3: Bessie is better than the Who-mobile. Just remember, the, the Who-mobile exists. Oh,
0: Lord.
3: Bessie yes. is the better of the two evils.
2: The only problem was the license plate. <laughs> the
0: license plate said Who-7. Now they but have... that was a bit much. <laughs> N- now, when the Brigadier, you know, uh, sort of... I guess he called it away from Gallifrey. Because okay. technically... In the actual timeline of our timeline of viewing the show, the last time we saw Bessie was in The Five Doctors. However, that Bessie was brought to Gallifrey from Pertwee's timeline. So, technically, it's wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey. But it was nice to see Bessie there, despite the change in the tag. However...
2: uh, go ahead. Before, uh, you know, before we had seen this episode, we had talked about this as a dream for, um, you know, as a dream for uh, uh, Capaldi. That now that we have the brigadier's daughter, mm. that at some point, you know, the that she at some point would track down uh, the Capaldi doctor and say, well, you know. Uh, Dad left this for you. And he, le- he 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 left one thing in his will for you. And it's Bessie. Yeah. You, I wanted to see Capaldi driving around Bessie. So McCoy's pretty good.
0: That's a pretty good alternative.
3: That is a pretty good alternative.
0: I, I again, with uh with Moffat being the fan of the old series as he is, I couldn't see how he wouldn't find some way to put Bessie in the new series it would be it'd be a nice homage
3: and uh speaking of Moffat being a fan i'm I'm sure that he has seen <laughs> this episode, but he has to like this episode because when we're moving into the final climax and Ace gets the silver bullets to take down the destroyer and gets ready to jump in the portal, what does she do? Geronimo. <laughs>
0: I didn't even catch that.
3: Oh yeah, Re- re-watch that. She 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 tells Shaoyun to stay behind and watch the portal, and she goes, Alright, here goes! Geronimo! And jumps right into it. And that is a terrible effect. The just like, spinning around in the glitter pool.
1: <laughs> but!
3: But the Geronimo made it just epic in all of the ways that it could be. And, another tie-in was that when Mordred First sees the doctor and recognizes him as Merlin. He says, It cannot be, my mother bound you. You weren't you were never supposed to get out. And I immediately thought Pandorica? Hmm. And I did as soon as I saw that the first time, I went back and re-watched the Pandorica opens, and was hoping that there was just somebody in there, in, in like the background, in a crown and some, some long medieval robes and sadly there was not. It made me very sad because if Moffat had done that I could have excused a lot of things. I could have excused most of Series 7 and that is saying something if only he'd had just someone who vaguely sort of looked like Morgaine at the Pandorica because where where is it even under Stonehenge
1: mm. just
3: saying <laughs> which is sometimes the burial place of Merlin I hate good wizards in stories they all turn out to be him
2: yes that's the yeah we 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 did need to mention that quote from River where she said I hate I hate wizards in fiction. They always turn out to be him.
3: So I'm just, I'm just. There are, there are seeds there planted, ready to give us glorious pseudo medieval sci-fi Camelot fruit.
0: Yeah, the the unfortunate thing is, I took that line, and this may be because I'm channeling the the John Borman Excalibur film, that it was. Morgan Le Fay or Morgane, whoever the character was in that iteration of the film, that trapped Burden Merlin in the Ice Cave in that film. So I was wondering if that was mm. analogous to that. It's been a long time since I've read like the uh the DeMort d'Arthur um
3: yeah.
0: the 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 telling of that, so I'm not really certain if that would have been the reference. But it would have been neat if they could have referenced the pan or, or related the Pandorica to morgane binding the doctor
3: in some way. I was I was really I really had my fingers crossed. I was I was really hoping and
2: But would she have shown herself?
3: Well see that's the thing, is I'm still uh, in, my in head my, head cannon, my head canon my head canon is that the person who actually built the Pandorica and gave it to everybody to go and trap the Doctor was morgane
0: There you go. Well, do we have anything else that we want to talk about on this on this episode? What are yeah, our general thoughts? Go ahead.
2: Yeah, I've, I've I've just got a couple things. First of all, one of the things I like about Ace is that she gives the Doctor, I think, his proper respect because you know Lord of Space and Time, uh, you know, incredibly powerful person.
3: Oncoming storm. The
2: oncoming storm, and she refers to him as Professor, which I think denotes. A proper respect for the most powerful being in the universe. I could be biased, but I think that's an appropriate terminology. I agree. All right then. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't tell Spitaro. He keeps calling me lackey. <laughs> oh, Spitaro
0: doesn't. Li- <laughs> Spataro doesn't listen to this show. He's, that's he's a, like, that's a he's like yeah. Scott Gardner. He doesn't listen to any shows that I'm on. <laughs> um, I. I did want to talk about the Denouement.
3: Yep,
2: uh, okay. the last whatever three or four minutes uh, of of the episode once the um, once the, uh, uh, the destroyer is dispatched and everything's are, are are put to right.
3: Everyone goes back to the Lethbridge Stewart home. Everything.
2: Everyone goes back to hang out with the Brigadier and his wife and family, and we get what I think is a very humorous scene where it ends up. There's going to be a ladies' night out, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and as I said, the five ladies head out: uh, Mrs. Brigadier, the new Ms. Brigadier, Ace and her buddy, and Bessie. Mm-hmm. And they all—they're going to
3: go have a night on the town. And when they come back, make sure the lawn is mowed and dinner's ready. And yeah,
2: the, the old Brigadier, <laughs> Brigadier, our man, asks, uh, "What about dinner?" <laughs>
3: And his wife just goes, oh, excellent, dear. Have something nice waiting for when, us for when we come back. ta ta! And off they go into the sunset. And Anselin, Anselin, my spirit animal of this story, just walks up, puts his hands on his hips and goes, ah, oh, are they not magnificent?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, and, and the and, doctor and makes dinner. Let me dinner. just say, Ace plus a set of goggles is absolutely adorable. I mean, is it, uh, is it appropriate to say it's Emily cover your ears? Ace, Ace is pretty
0: hot in this episode. She looks I, great. Yeah, I, I, I watched some of the all of some of the uh, out or some of the modern things that they did on the DVD. Sophie Alfred looks nice today, even even currently. She's she's very attractive, and yeah, in this in this episode, yeah, she does look she does look nice. She's. The Yo, president
3: but... of my campus Hoovian Society hugged Sophie Aldred, and I'm very jealous of her. <laughs>
2: so are me and Sean, and Sh- and, and, shag. and somewhere
0: Shag is jealous as well.
3: <laughs> he doesn't know because, why. Uh,
0: she's hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least at least we got a little bit of Shag in here, you know, <laughs> plugging in the show. Even though he couldn't be here, he was here in spirit. And uh, I'll I'll forego the uh, the usual comment that we have. Uh, that we use whenever we're from, talking about shag from thomas dj yes, yes. yeah we'll, <laughs> we'll um. keep this pg-13 okay <laughs> but uh, yeah uh, despite the fact that this is considered by some fans to be a lesser episode i thoroughly enjoyed it uh if if you're not an arthurian fan it may not be for you but if you are an arthurian fan there's going to be a lot of stuff to like in this
2: and like I said, there are a lot of Easter eggs mm-hmm. and you know references both to past iterations and adventures, and even as we said, you know there are you know, echoes from from the from New Who that have been picked up. So I think in that sense it can be appreciated. Again, you have to get over the music and the horrible special effects. Mostly
3: the lightning. I will admit that is that is the worst effect I think I have ever seen in Doctor Who. That is atrocious
0: it was it was pretty bad
3: it wouldn't have been as bad if they, they hadn't shown it five times it. the inner <laughs> cut with mordred going <laughs> 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 yeah you need
2: to have a fan edit that cuts out a couple of the lightning smash str- couple of the lightning strikes and a couple maniacal and that, laughters. and
3: that trims down the uh the i don't even know the booby trap for the cliffhanger at the end of episode three and the yeah, start of absolutely. episode four, because that is a pretty, it's 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 like master ghost snake spirit level bad, yeah. but fifteen years earlier, so. But,
2: yeah. but, but, but I think overall, I mean, there are a lot of complaints you can make about this about this episode, but one complaint you can't make, which you can make about many classic uh, Who stories, is that this one does not drag. There is no part where you think, oh, this is where they stretched it out. You know, I mean, you. We've all watched past Doctor Who episodes from this era and before, where we say, "Oh, this is the episode that's the padding." This mm-hmm. is
3: the episode where they run around and get kidnapped three times.
2: Yes, there, there, there's not that. This is, I mean, it, it is, it is action uh, straight to finish. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's not a lull, and and I think that that helps. I think, again, the writing and the dialogue is crisp. I'm kind of surprised uh, to hear what you said, that the, that the writer uh, was not satisfied. I, I don't know if that was more on the sort of overall big picture plot things that, that he had in mind. But again, I think the detail, I think the, at the script level, I think it's very strong.
3: Yeah.
0: I tend to agree.
3: I just... I, I think that this is fantastic. I highly recommend this to anyone who sort of wants to see what classic Who is like. Like, I would put this up there with the Aztecs for something that is a good, typical example of Doctor Who. It's not the best episode of all time, that's for sure. It's got some serious, serious flaws, but I think they're all flaws that'll help you appreciate Doctor Who that is better than this, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah, that I've I've had I have. These discussions with some of my friends sometimes who are Whovians who talk about that Doctor Who is at its best when it is speculative science fiction. And I can see that. I don't entirely agree, though. I think that Doctor Who is at its best when it is a character drama, first and foremost. When you can really believe the character motivations and the relationships that are being set up, that that is when it's at its best. When it is at its absolute worst is not when it's silly is not when it's even sort of vaguely offensive isn't when it's dumb and there's a lot of silly or dumb or offensive doctor who it's when it's boring and this episode is anything but boring it is packed with action with humor with some surprisingly dramatic moments that you aren't expecting and that take you off guard i I just I think that this is something that people should absolutely watch unless you've got like a very strong aversion to fantasy if you like Game of Thrones like if you can if you just enjoy knights hitting each other with swords and can appreciate a well-timed pun this is absolutely for you and
2: again, again it, it, it it is a mix of sci-fi and fantasy
3: and which, drama which and turns, comedy and that, it's you know weird. The,
2: that mix of genres could turn people off I me mean, yeah. I can see. Why it doesn't rank in the top 10, in the top 20, oh, yeah. in the top 40. It's not 197th out of 211 episodes. It's not... I mean, can I say... If, if I say it's not that bad... <laughs> what I mean is...
3: It's much better than that. It's a
2: little
0: better than average, I think, yeah. for Doctor Who. No, I fully agree. It's... Uh, and and it's, like, fun. It's, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Yes. It's
3: crazy fun.
0: And uh, that's a lot of times more than serious character development or a dramatic special effects or a, a gripping horror story or whatever you'd like to see in Doctor Who that we come across every once in a while in the modern iteration of that. What I look forward to in Doctor Who is something that's going to entertain me and is going to be fun. And this, this hit in the right spot. Uh, like I've said before, a lot of times these are episodes of doctor who that i have only experienced i'm experiencing for the first time and this is one that i'm really glad that i got to experience so thank you guys for coming on the show and getting to talk about this i really enjoyed this
3: it was great to be here
0: thanks Uh, thanks for having us no problem before we go i would like to say that we got an email and uh we'll go ahead and read that if you don't mind Go for it. Okay. This one comes in from Chris and Cindy Franklin. I'm pretty certain it's Chris Franklin. Chris. Yeah. Because, the, well, he makes Cindy type them, so we'll just go with <laughs> that. But this one was about the uh, the episode that we did last time, The Fires of Pompeii, and he calls it The Spoilers of Pompeii. Unfortunately, it's addressed to uh, Hope, Shag, and myself, so unfortunately, Emily and Well, Alan... we,
3: could be, we could be Hope and Shag. Dad, sure. angrier
0: i thought, thought you, you were wanted home? me to get to get more fangirlish and squeal on
3: okay i can do that i can be shag
0: <laughs> well he already he already mentioned that ace is hot so i think he's uh his shag quota for the
3: episode
0: <laughs> uh chris writes in saying that i was happy to see a new who true freaks in my itunes today but knowing that you were covering the fires of pompeii i was afraid you might get into spoilers on season eight my family and I fell behind with the season and were about four episodes out. So I started listening, and when you started getting into the spoiler territory, I skipped ahead. Little did I know that you dropped some spoilerage answering my only email. <laughs>
1: Sigh.
0: Oh. Well, I'm I'm sorry, Chris, that we kind of spoiled the season. I uh, we did record that pretty much immediately after the uh, the final episode, the the one where. The, the where Missy essentially turned everyone, every dead person to Cybermen. So uh, I apologize for spoiling that, but yeah, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, you got over that.
2: Spoilers: The Doctor is Merlin from twenty five years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah! <laughs> you'll have to, you'll have to uh, do, I arrange that around in the uh, timing when and everything <laughs> uh, he continues on, says, but don't feel bad. That's not my that's my fault for not hitting that D B R quicker. Cindy and I happened to catch the fires of Pompeii a few months ago, right before Capaldi started his run. It was indeed a very powerful episode. Donna does shine in this one, and it really made me like her as I hadn't seen much of her at this point. Oh, uh, do you do you guys have any uh, things that you'd like to comment on fires of Pompeii while we're while we're talking about this email? I love Donna. I love Donna. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's pretty much the general opinion of this. Donna was really great in this, and uh, Capaldi was interesting in it. He yeah. was he, he had a kind of comedic bit in it, but I think yeah, you're right. Donna really sh- shone in that episode.
3: It's actually one of the episodes I've never watched fully because it was during that fourth season where I was finally starting to slowly warm back up to Doctor Who. So I've seen like Turn Left and a couple other of the episodes in the season finale, which is just a pain. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: In in the good, dramatic
0: way. In
3: the good, wonderful, dramatic way, unlike the end of series four. Anyway.
0: There you go. Uh, He continues on saying, man, I hate to say this, but I think Shag's theory is fantastic concerning the 12th Doctor's connection to Capaldi's previous character. Mm -hmm. Now, if you remember that, it was like the 12th Doctor took the face of uh, Capaldi from this episode because he was a character that that meant something to him. He was a survivor, mm-hmm. a soul survivor. It it, it it represented the Doctor at his best. Mhm. And he says I can't even begin to spell his name right now. i talking about Capaldi's character there. Oh yeah. If they don't do this, they should. It's no doubt better than what they'll come up with. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, like, like I said, it, it probably fills in uh, capaldi actually coming in to the role as the doctor and him being related to a character that appeared in a previous iteration is, pro- is probably just working through people's head canon and right. trying to make a connection between those two things we've seen prior uh with uh, the colin baker character that he was in a peter davidson episode before he came in as the doctor plus we also saw um, Karen Gillan in the uh, Fires of Pompeii episode so it's not uncommon for character actors to come back and play in Doctor Who it was just this character actor actually came back to be the character of the Doctor so mm-hmm. he finishes up saying looking forward to your season 8 coverage and I promise to get those episodes in by then Chris <laughs> well thank you very much Chris we appreciate you writing in uh, Chris is the host of the Supermates podcast which you can find, I believe, at Supermates Podcast. I think Supermates I want to get that out. But just go do a search for Supermates, Com- or Supermates Podcast. It's a fun, fun show. But uh, if you'd like to write into the show, uh, go ahead and write into my. Uh, you can write in to the email address for my show, which is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. And we will read your emails on the next episode. Alan, Emily, it was incredibly enjoyable to get to watch this episode and get to talk to you about it. Um, since we're finishing up, do you guys want to go ahead and tell people where they can find you on the internet?
2: Yeah, our little mini podcast uh, network, uh, you know, you're hearing this on Two True Freaks. In comparison, we are about one-fifth of a true freak. <laughs> yeah. I think in comparison, the, 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 the uh, the ratio of content uh, puts us at about that. But we are glad to be friends of the freaks. Uh, very, very, very proudly to be our, our neighborhood uh, just outside the gated community of <laughs> two Freaks. Um, yeah, our, our podcast network is relatively geeky at relatively or search in iTunes. And the shows in ascending order of popularity. At the bottom of the list is my solo show, The Quarterbin Podcast. Uh, then in the middle is the show that, that Emily and I do together, The Short Box Showcase. And then the one that dominates the popularity of the feed is Emily's solo show, Uncovering the Bronze Age i'm i'm just starting to get over this
3: though to be fair if you take the total number of views of mine and the total number of views of yours it's probably about the same because you have i've done
2: 40 episodes you've You've done five
3: yeah i was gonna say you've easily done 10 times as many episodes as me
0: and total downloads are about even not that i'm bitter about it the total the whole quantity versus quality thing is really rubbing your (laughs) eyes in it, alan thanks sean
3: no 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 it's the it's the ongoing event
2: that's right ongoing that's right. event the, yeah, my shows are the ongoing you know just filling the time in the <laughs> uh, in 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 the network schedule or in the publishing schedule and emily is the event podcast
0: to be honest i i have to credit you i i completely am enraptured with the short box showcase shows that you do it I know it's kind of taking from the dynamic that a certain other podcast over here at Two True Freaks does, the uh, Hit I've, Kids Comics I've, podcast. I
2: don't understand what you are talking about. <laughs> Plus, uh, the uh, the the international law is very murky on this, Sean.
0: <laughs> but but regardless, listening to <laughs> converse about whatever you're talking about on Short Box Showcase is always an entertaining show. If if you are listening to any podcast over at Relatively Geeky, I would significantly recommend that you check out the Shortbox Showcase because the dynamic that you two have and your give and take and just the fun of the show is is well worth listening to. Well, thank you, Sean. I, I don't tell Emily this, but I really
2: enjoy recording that.
3: Aww. <laughs> I enjoy not having to edit it. That's why it comes out approximately <laughs> monthly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that always does help.
3: I should have an episode coming out roughly around the end of the year-ish, maybe, sort
2: of, kind of. And, maybe. uh, and, uh n- not, not to spoil too much, Sean, but she might be doing a little Green Lantern, Green Arrow at some point in early 2015.
3: Well, to be fair, I'm doing a 70s DC Comics show. I kind of have to. Yeah,
0: yeah it's, that, that is it's, true. It's, 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 it's law. It's
3: <laughs> internet law. It's
0: required reading. Well folks thank you very much for coming on the show again and thank you all for downloading and listening we'll be back sometime soon with some more doctor who shows and we'll catch you next time on another episode of who true freaks bye everyone
3: bye
2: That helps others find the show, too.
0: Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks.
2: Look, we understand. We know what you're saying. We understand why you couldn't get anyone else to join on the call. I know. I because when when Thomas DJ heard Battlefield, he said, "Oh, I'm busy that day." He said, "I haven't told you what." Day. He said, "No, I'm busy that day." <laughs> Actually, and Thomas, Luke, and Hope and Andy—they all ran for the hill. I understand. Mm-hmm.
0: Supposedly, there was a stop. Oh crap! Windows. Those... Huh? I'm sorry. I'm getting a thing for Windows update. Let me postpone. <laughs> I don't want it. Stop. No way. I don't want to restart now.
3: <laughs> Do you want us to disconnect our phone or
0: something? Can, can, can you hear the phone ringing Yes, yes I can yeah. hear the phony. <sighs> this <sighs> uh, this is editable. End of show clip. <laughs> End that of a show goddamn
3: clip. clip. Goddamn phone. Every time. Did, every time I record anything. We did put the cat the away. Phone we did put the cat off. up. Yes, we did. But every single time. And it's my show, Shortbox Showcase, this, I co-host on something, the phone always goes off. Thank you, Dad. Just unplug it? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Technology. Oh, yes. Such a see, boon and bane.
0: See, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I've got my iPhone up here. I need to put
3: that on mute. <laughs> See, I already did that. We moved the cat. We turned off even the printer and the TV and everything. And oh, the phone.
2: Muted the phone. Me, me, me our cell phones.
3: Yep. Okay. All
2: right. Uh, I'll, I'll start with my Doctor Who word. Yes, okay. you
3: were you were saying something about Doctor Who. I don't know. That Go.
0: was. <laughs> that was. Uh, Gloria Aldred. Or is it Gloria? No, Sophie. No. Sophie Aldred. Sophie Gloria. Aldred. <laughs> yeah, Sophie Aldred. <laughs> Gloria Aldred. Yep. Sorry. I actually,
3: I kind of wanted to, this was one of my little side points Um, I love Morgane in this, like she's seriously one of my favorite Doctor Who villains right now and if you take like, female Doctor Who villains tend to frustrate me a lot because they all tend to be the Ronnie and that's (laughs) really unfortunate because when I was watching this it was actually making me a little annoyed with series 8 because this is what I want from female master is I want more game oh, that's what that's yes. what I, that's what I that. want like I deeply honorable and crazy scary.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah like, you that's
3: what I want that. and then we got missy and I was like mm. yes, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, it's what happens when you get a female Anthony Ainley instead of a female Roger Delgado yes like th- that's the problem <laughs> i think i think that's i
0: think that's an apt description of the way that you could tell the difference between this character being an analog for the master and the character of missy being an analog for the master those two that that completely fits in the way that they hold themselves because delgado was he was scary and ainsley was goofy, crazy yeah